Well, good morning again. It is a delight to be with you this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 5. To Micah chapter 5. And while you're finding your place in Micah, there near the end of the Old Testament, I will say a few words of introduction. It's about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Thus, as Matthew reports, the chief priests and scribes answered Herod with the words of Micah 5, verse 2, as we read this morning when he asked them where the Christ was to be born, saying, In Bethlehem in Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah's words were well known, but they caused some controversy later on when people wondered if Jesus might be the Christ, as we read in John chapter 7, verse 40 through 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Apparently, it was well known that Jesus had grown up in Galilee, but after some 30 years, that he was born in Bethlehem was not widely known. In both cases, Jesus' opponents unwittingly bore witness to his messianic credentials, since at the appointed time, he was born in Bethlehem. But Micah has more to say about the child to be born in Bethlehem. And that is what I want to consider this morning as we look more fully at what Micah has to say. For many children have been born in that city since Micah spoke his words, but only one can fulfill what he said, can fulfill all that he said of him. For Micah didn't speak only about his birthplace. He also spoke about his eternal origins and his eternal destiny so that the faithful among God's people might know and believe in the one who would deliver them from all their trials forever. In this way, Micah encourages us also, as God's people, not only to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but to embrace Him in faith as our good shepherd and our faithful King from this time forth and forevermore. And so if you found your place then in Micah chapter 5, would you follow along with me as I read from verse 2? to the very beginning of verse 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that as we look to your words from so many years ago, through your servant, the prophet Micah, and as we consider your son, whom Micah spoke about. We pray, Lord, that you would give us light and understanding that we might know your word and receive it with wisdom, that we might have hearts that are softened to your word to make us to believe and to trust in the one whom you sent and whom you will send again to bring about the consummation of all your saving promises and an eternal peace that will never end. Fix our eyes on Christ, O Lord, we pray as we look to your word. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the prophets challenge us. They challenge even the most skilled reader of Scripture because they do not speak with precision in every detail. At times their speech is vague. It's elliptical. For example, when Micah describes this coming ruler, he describes him as one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And we are left wondering, what exactly does he mean? Similarly, when he refers to a time when she who is in labor has given birth, we want to know who is he talking about 
or what is he talking about? Can we have a name? Can we have some specifics here that will help us to know what it is that he is saying? But this manner of speaking is intentional for a number of reasons. It forces the hearer or the reader to meditate upon the prophet's words and to consider their meaning. Additionally, we're forced to reckon with the fact that the prophets held a unique perspective, one that is more heavenly than earthly. Therefore, they didn't perceive events according to a strict timeline in human history. Very rarely will you, you read a prophet situating events with precise details according to human calendars. They saw people and events in relation to one another in terms of God's saving acts, but not in relation to the years in our calendar. Accordingly, the fulfillment of their words could come all at once, but more often it unfolds over the course of time. It's like someone saying, the other day I spent the day filling my swimming pool. And you simply know that didn't happen all at once, but took rather a lot of time from when they turned on the faucet to when they turned it off. The prophets sometimes speak like that about God's saving work, and yet when we see the, the words come to their fulfillment, they unfold over the course of time. And we need to understand that as we think about Micah's words. Now think about this for a moment. Let's compare what Micah says in Micah 5 with what we hear Luke say, as we remember Luke's account of the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and following, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. From Luke, we know Jesus' name. We know the name of his mother. We know the situation that led her to Bethlehem late in her pregnancy. And we can reasonably locate the year of Jesus' birth through the historical information that Luke provides us. We expect this in a historical narrative, but prophets like Micah look forward in time through visions which are not intended as a detailed account like what we find in Luke. Rather, they are meant to assure God's people in a particular time and place of God's plan by describing His saving work in the future according to patterns that we can see as repeating We see God's saving work repeat according to these patterns, and it's the prophets who help us to discern these patterns. Now, if we look for the fulfillment of the prophets' words all at once, or if we reject the prophet's ambiguity and close our mind to possible interpretations of what he says, we're likely to misunderstand his words and their fulfillment, not unlike those who questioned whether or not Jesus could be the Christ because he had grown up in Galilee. For example, we might note that God's people do not experience the peace and security that Micah spoke about at present. Though Micah said the coming ruler would bring these things, we might incorrectly conclude that either the prophet's words have failed, if we expect them to be fulfilled all at once, or that Jesus is not actually the Christ. But if we remember that God's view of history differs markedly from ours. For, as Psalm 90 verse 4 says, a thousand years in his sight are but, a, but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. Then we can recall that the prophet's vision being a heavenly perspective does not give us what will happen in the course of a day or an hour or even in the course of a year. And so we become more comfortable recognizing that God's promises unfold across a few poetic lines in Micah and yet across a few millennia for us. We still wonder, why would God speak in this way? Wouldn't it be much more helpful if God simply gave us the prophetic words the way that Luke gives us his report about Jesus' birth? Then we would know for sure. We could say to everybody, God said exactly these things would take place, and look, exactly those precise details took place just as he had said it. Well, in part, 
The answer, I suspect, is that this form of prophetic speech encourages us to continue to live by faith, trusting that God's words are true and are certain and will not fail, even in circumstances when their outcome seems uncertain. We live by faith when we trust that God will finish what He started. What He has begun to fulfill, He will surely bring to its completion. When trials in our lives challenge our faith, we can consider the progress of God's saving work in history and thus renew our hope as we wait for the fullness of our salvation. I think there's another answer that I might propose. The prophets describe, as I've said, patterns. They establish patterns that we see unfold at various points in the history of God's saving work. More precision might blur these patterns in our sight. But these general descriptions help us to recognize the patterns across time and, importantly, apply them in our own experience. This should bolster our faith as well in God and in the salvation that He has promised us in Christ. We're going to consider some of those patterns this morning as we consider more fully what Micah has to say. Now, this is the nature of the prophet's challenge for us, but it does not mean we cannot discern Micah's meaning. Micah's words, what they are intended to say, both to his, in his context and in ours. In fact, we can meet this challenge by approaching the text from two different perspectives I want to suggest to you and that we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to consider it from Micah's perspective in his own generation and in harmony with the words of other prophets whom God sent to speak about the coming of Christ and the salvation He would bring for His people. And second, we're going to consider Micah's words from our perspective as we look back on the unfolding fulfillment of his words as they're recorded in the New Testament and as we see them unfolding even in our own lives and history. And in this way, we will meet the prophetic challenge and understand what Micah has to say both in his generation and in ours. Now let's... First, I, I need to help, we need to consider together some of the context, some of what's going on in Micah's circumstances. By the time God began to speak to the people of Israel through Micah, sometime after Jotham became king in about 742 B.C., Israel had been divided into two kingdoms for more than two centuries. Sometime about 975 B.C. is when they had a civil war that divided them into the northern kingdom, which retained the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, after the tribe that predominated in that region. The divided kingdom at the largest scale was a symptom of the great challenge that faced God's people in Micah's day. Now, if you were to ask an Israelite of that time, what is the most pressing challenge that faces us today? Probably most of them would say Assyria. Or about 100 years later, they'd say Babylon. They'd look outside their borders, beyond their borders, and they'd consider the threats that were rising in the east. These nations that were conquering other nations and were establishing great empires. By the time of Micah, the kingdom that was so great and glorious under David and then under Solomon was just a, a, former, a shadow of its former glory. They were weak and helpless against their eastern neighbors. During Micah's career, Assyria would come and they would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And they would carry off into exile many of the people of Israel in those northern tribes. In 701 B.C., about 21 years later, they would come and lay siege to Jerusalem. They would ravage the land of Judah, and they would threaten to destroy the whole city before God miraculously, responding to a prayer from King Hezekiah, turned the armies of the Assyrians away. But in Micah's perspective, this was not the most pressing problem. It would be rather like a politician today who asked what's the greatest problem facing our nation, speaks about foreign nations in Asia or Europe and the rise of great powers that might threaten us when all along there's corruption in our own nation, in our government and in our streets, and there's lawlessness and all sorts of problems that plague our nation. What really is the most pressing problem in Micah's perspective is an internal problem. Micah did speak about Assyria and about Babylon, who would arise uh, soon. But the rise of these two nations was only a symptom of the real problem. The real problem was unbelief 
among God's people. And Assyria and then later Babylon were merely instruments in God's hands. They were instruments for God to discipline and to judge His nation for their idolatry and for rejecting His covenant with His people. And there are specific charges that Micah brought as indictments against his people. Micah charged that Israel's leaders were faithless shepherds. They were greedy rulers who took advantage of God's people. So, for instance, if you turn back a page or two in your Bible to Micah chapter 2, we can read in verse 1 and 2 an indictment that Micah delivers to the greedy rulers of Israel. He says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in their power, in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, man and his inheritance. The rulers, the powerful, the rich were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters in the land of Judah and Israel. And so Micah actually vividly portrays them as though they were cannibals in chapter 3. Just look down the page a little bit to the first verse of chapter 3. And you hear this charge that he lays against them. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh of my people and inflay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Israel and Judah suffered under faithless shepherds. Their kings and rulers did not protect the people. They abused them for their own profit. As a result, Micah declared that God would send them into exile. Assyria and Babylon would carry them away. Now few who were called prophets in Micah's day shared his perspective. And this was another example of faithless shepherding. False prophets in Micah's day disregarded God's word and opposed Micah. Like modern preachers who refused to warn people concerning God's judgment despite the many passages in Scripture that speak of everlasting judgment for those who reject the Lord and refuse to believe. Micah dealt with the same problem. And so in Micah 2 verse 6, he recounts a conversation, a challenge that he received, where people would say, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Like the rulers of Israel, these false prophets only cared about how they might profit from their message. So Micah said, if a man, this is verse 11 of that chapter, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. In other words, the preacher that's, that, that the people craves and that the prophets want to be are those who would go around preaching about wine and beer. That was the situation in Micah's day. It was one to which we might relate. For the people of Israel and Judah, there were threats standing at their door, but the greatest threats came from within their own house. The external threats were merely a sign of God's displeasure with His people. Because instead of loving their brothers and neighbors, the powerful and the influential coveted their property and oppressed them and misled them to worship idols and to trust in foreign powers instead of trusting in the one true and living God, instead of loving and serving Him. So God sent Micah, like a prosecuting attorney, with an indictment against his people and their leaders, but he also sent him like a diplomat with a message of salvation, a message of hope, a message of peace for all who are willing to trust the Lord. And in our text, we come to such a promise as Micah promises God's solution to the problem of faithless shepherds in Israel by pointing him forward and giving him a vision of a future day when God would raise up for his people a faithful shepherd king. And through a series of contrasts, what Micah will do for us is describe the origin of this ruler, his arrival in history, and his reign for eternity. That is, Micah will paint contrasting pictures of where he comes from, his origin, what it's like when he arrives and after he arrives and his arrival, and what his reign will be like as he contrasts one who would be both shepherd and king.
First, his origin, which we can describe with this phrase, from humility and from glory. From humility and from glory. As Micah describes the origin of this coming ruler, he describes him as both humble and glorious. He is from Bethlehem, yet his coming is from of old, from ancient days. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now the name of a city in Micah is meaningful. Earlier in chapter 1, you see in chapter 1, verse 10 and following, that Micah will utter a lament, where he will lament ten different cities in the land of Judah. And he plays upon the meaning of their names. So, for example, one of the cities is called Bethlehra, which in Hebrew means house of dust. And Micah will say to that city, roll yourself in the dust, Bethlehra. It's like saying, roll yourself in the dust, house of dust. Because that would be a sign of mourning, a sign of wailing. As Micah was foretelling the fact that armies would come through the land and ravage that land and eventually the Babylonians would come and carry off the people of those cities into exile or drive them into hiding in caves. Micah played upon the, the, the meaning of those cities' names to express his lament over what would come about. But as he turns to Bethlehem, we ought to recognize that here the meaning of this town is, uh, the, the, the meaning of the name is also important for Micah. Bethlehem means literally house of bread. And Ephrathah means fruitful. And these names point forward to the fruitfulness of this city as the birthplace of the Messiah. To put it another way, the Messiah will come from a humble place, a small town that is not even counted among the greater cities of Judah. But his humble origins will not prevent him from coming to his great destiny as the future ruler of Israel. He is one who will reign over Israel, Micah says, and implies by saying he will rule in Israel that he will unite both kingdoms in one united way as one united people of God. Moreover, these words imply a renewal of David's line. David was born in Bethlehem, you might know. This was the first city of David, but he established his reign in Jerusalem and his son's after him who would reign, they, by and large, were born in Jerusalem. His line remained there to Micah's day. The idea that a future son of David who would reign forever would be born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, implied, therefore, an end to the line of kings that was reigning in Jerusalem. The kings would leave their place in Jerusalem. But God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. We hear these words that were spoken by the prophet Nathan and then uh, uh, for, by the Lord to David, where he said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there's only two ways in which that kind of promise can be fulfilled. One way is through an unending succession of kings, an eternal dynasty, a throne that is established forever. But Micah is implying that that line is going to come to an end. And it would when Babylon would come and destroy the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and Carry off Judah's rulers and the people. And that kingdom, that line would not be established again in that place, in that way. The other way that that promise can be fulfilled is by a single son of David, a single ruler who will reign forever. And what Micah is doing is pointing forward to that single ruler who will renew and reestablish the line of David in an eternal reign, in eternal rule. Despite their faithfulness, that is the kings of Judah, God was not about to forget his covenant. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He always keeps His promises. Nevertheless, He was not about to keep that promise by sustaining this wicked dynasty. Rather, He purposed to renew that dynasty through David's greater son. And He would begin similarly from the same humble origin from which David himself began. 
This is an important pattern in God's saving work. And Mary sang about it when Gabriel came and announced to her that she would bear the Christ, that she would bear a child in her Magnificat in Luke 1, 51-55. She said this, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary knew, Mary understood that God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to David as he was exalting those who were humble and he was bringing down those who were proud in the birth of a child whom she would bear. When God saves, this is his pattern, he demonstrates his might and he demonstrates his grace by exalting the humble, those who cannot help him themselves, and by humbling the proud and the exalted. As Jesus himself declared in Luke 14, 11, and again in Luke 18, 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so it was, too, with our Lord Himself, who humbled Himself by becoming a man and being born in such a humble town as Bethlehem. But this brings us then to His glorious origin. For He's not just from humility, He's also from glory. And this Micah also says. He reveals the degree to which Jesus would humble Himself as He speaks about His origin, His coming forth, being from of old and from ancient days. Now, as I said, prophetic speech can be intentionally vague, and there are different ways in which we can take this language. On one hand, all Micah could be saying is that God was fulfilling His ancient purposes, promises that are from of old, promises that were made in ancient days. And there's some truth to that. Surely Micah is showing us that in this coming ruler, God is fulfilling ancient purposes and promises. But is that all that Micah is saying? Is Micah simply saying that there is a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when God promised that an offspring of the woman would crush the head of a serpent? No, I think he's saying more. I think that he, in a vague and in in an elliptical way, is pointing to the internal nature of this coming shepherd. That he himself comes forth from eternity. Why do I think this? Well, very often this kind of language, when you search through the Hebrew Scriptures and you look at it, you find that it is applied to God in some way or form. Let me read a few texts and give you some examples of ways in which God Himself is described as one who is from of old, who is from everlasting. This kind of language where we translate the words. In Isaiah 45, 21, God was differentiating Himself, distinguishing Himself from the idols that the people of Israel worshipped. And through the prophet Isaiah, he said to them, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. In other words, God's point through Isaiah was that the reason why I'm true, why those idols are false, is because I'm the only one who spoke of old and brings it to pass. And so again in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, he could say this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. There's our terminology. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. The prophet Habakkuk also would say of God, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? The same language and the Psalms, yet God my King is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. 
Now, some of these texts speak about the Lord's words, others about His works, and others about the Lord Himself. But in every case, we see that God is unique in this way. He is the only one who so transcends time and so transcends history that He can be described as of old and that He can speak in ancient times and bring those things to pass. It is true that we can speak about a mere human in this way, as Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 12.46, saying, For long ago, in the days of David, this is the same terminology, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. But the thing about David and Asaph is that though they can be described as of old, they stay in that time of old. But God is different, because He can be one who is from of old, and yet is very present at every moment, and will be present and powerful, and demonstrating his power at every point in human history. And what Micah says about this coming ruler is that his coming forth, not a word spoken about him is of old, but his actual coming forth is from of old, is from ancient days, or is from eternity. What I suggest to you is that Micah is pointing out that the Messiah, the coming Christ, would be one who is like the Lord Himself in this way. Though the meaning of the language is initially ambiguous, at least we can say that Micah describes the coming ruler with descriptions that are frequently applied to God. And in the cumulative effect of these things, they show us that this coming ruler, in some way, is to be identified with God Himself. Because Micah will bring together other descriptions where he describes this ruler as uniquely representing the Lord himself. In verse 4, he will say that he will rule in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And we begin to see the picture become clearer. At this point, we can be helped by considering the words of Micah's contemporary among the prophets. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, speaks very similarly. He speaks about a child who is to be born in verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. And we read this, For to us a child is born. And you cannot hear it in the English, but that language sounds very much like what we read in Micah when we read about the woman who is to give birth, when she who is to bear has given birth. Let's just listen to the sound. Yoleda, yaleda in Micah 5.3. Yaled, yulad in Isaiah 9.6. You hear that same sound. And it seems that Micah and Isaiah are intentionally speaking about the same thing, that is, Micah is is alluding to what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah would have spoken first. We even see a strikingly similar context where they both describe a child who is born after a time of difficulty in a marvelous way and who bears remarkable resemblance to the Lord. And things are said about him that are only said of God. For to us a child is born, Isaiah says, to us a son is given... And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You don't say that about a mere man. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he says, will do this. Micah and Isaiah both speak about this one who comes from glory and yet humbles himself and comes from humility as well. And so he points forward to the humble and the glorious origins of the king who is to come, the king who has come, whose name is Jesus. He also speaks about his arrival in history in words that remind us of the exile and show us that he inaugurates a time of restoration from exile, a time of return from these kinds of things. And we go on and we see that Micah describes the arrival of this ruler by saying that, excuse me, as he describes the arrival of this ruler, what he says is that he shall give them up, that is speaking of the Lord, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return. Now, our initial thought, I think, when we hear these words, should give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, is to think of Mary. However, 
If we are attentive to what Micah has said already in his letter, in Micah 4, 9 and 10, we can see that he has already portrayed his people, particularly Jerusalem, as a woman personifying Jerusalem by calling it the daughter of Zion. Look at Micah 4, 9 and 10. He says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. What Micah is saying is that Israel as, and, and Judah, as they go into exile, that their experience is so like the experience of a woman in labor, that their exile is to be counted as though it were birth pangs for the nation. And so what he says then in Micah 5 is that the time of giving birth comes when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, and at that time then there will be a time of restoration. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so his arrival marks the end of a time of exile and the beginning inaugurates the time of restoration. Now, Mary would come to typify the faithful among God's people. And Isaiah would speak of her more precisely when he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. However, in this context, Micah is speaking about the faithful among God's people and the suffering they will endure when he refers to she who is in labor. This is consistent with Isaiah's words when he says of the coming Christ, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Micah declares then the advent of Christ as one that brings an end to the times of difficulty and one that inaugurates a time of restoration. Now the chief mark of that renewal and restoration is to be seen in repentance. Micah says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. We wonder, what does this mean? But in this context of exile, we naturally think of a return to the land. But I suggest to you that that return is only secondary in Micah's mind because he uses the language of brothers returning to a people. In other words, here we find a picture of restored relationships. Now recall that in Micah's day, the people of Judah and Israel were separated as kingdoms. They were not united as one kingdom. They lived in a divided kingdom. And later in Micah's day, by the time he's speaking these words, that northern kingdom had been carried away. But Micah's career came to an end under the reign of King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah among the kings, was actually a rather faithful king. From Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18, we know that Hezekiah led the people of Israel to respond rightly to what Micah preached. In, Isaiah 26, excuse me, in Jeremiah 26, 18 and following, we can hear these words, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Israel, excuse me, all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? So the people of Jeremiah's day wanted to kill him. And so people were responding to those persecutors by saying, Hezekiah's people didn't do that. And then they told him the Lord relented of the disaster that he had pronounced against them because of their repentance. Why does that matter? Because we can read in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 how Hezekiah led the people to repent, I think at Micah's preaching. And particularly in verse 9, he led them to repent by reinstituting the practice of the Passover, not just in Judah, but he in fact would send messengers throughout all of the northern tribes and call them to join their brothers in Judah, to return to return to their brothers. And he uses this very language in chapter 30, verse 9 of Second Chronicles, saying, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. You see, the priority is on returning to the Lord and only then on returning to the land. 
For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. I believe that Hezekiah's instructions reflected a proper understanding of Micah's message in verse 3 of this text. Micah prophesied of a ruler who would bring about a restoration of God's people by leading them to return to the Lord through repentance. Hezekiah tried to do that very thing. His efforts only succeeded in part because we can go on to read that most of the northern kingdom rejected his invitation to return. They mocked him and laughed at him. But Micah declared a greater king would come, one who would inaugurate that time of restoration when his brothers would, in fact, return to the Lord and return to the people of Israel. Finally, he speaks of his eternal reign. And here he creates another contrast, a contrast between king and shepherd. Now, in our minds, we probably should not see a contrast between king and shepherd. If you think of an of a, a ancient relief of a pharaoh, you recall that pharaohs in those Uh, in those carvings, would have a shepherd's crook in their hands because in the ancient world, a king was understood to be the shepherd of his people. And yet, we remember that the leaders in Micah's day were not really shepherds at all. They were faithless shepherds at the best. As Ezekiel would put it to a later generation, when the shepherds of Israel feed themselves instead of the sheep, they are not really shepherds. And this is a familiar picture in any society. From ancient times, people have portrayed their kings as shepherds, and yet the reality is almost always far different. Every society knows what it's like to suffer under corrupt rulers who do not govern the people well, but use their people for their own profit. That was the situation in Micah's day. But the coming ruler would bring about a reign that would be radically different. Micah says he will stand indicating that his reign will endure and he will shepherd his flock. He will care for his people as a good shepherd and faithful shepherd cares for his sheep, not in his own wisdom and strength, however, but in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. In other words, he will be empowered by the Lord and he will represent the Lord in his majesty but he will not abuse that power and authority for his own purposes. Instead, he will serve and he will care for his people in the strength and in the name of the Lord, guarding God's reputation as his appointed representative who properly cares for people, representing the one, the Lord, who is our shepherd. He would be and is our faithful shepherd king. And the result of his shepherding reign would be an unassailable peace and security for his greatness we read will extend to the ends of the earth beyond the borders of israel indeed he shall be great to the ends of the earth micah declares and he himself shall be their peace therefore god through micah promised that the messiah the christ would be a faithful shepherd king who would bring eternal peace and security by restoring god's people as one united people in submission to the Lord their God. Now I want to conclude with some reflections on this passage from our perspective as we look back and consider its fulfillment in history. Remember that the prophets viewed matters from a heavenly perspective, so they viewed events all at once in some cases. And they also did not have a complete perspective. God did not give them every detail. But by considering these things in their unfolding fulfillment, we can fill in the details as we draw together various texts of Scripture. First, we recall the clear and unmistakable point that our Lord was born in Bethlehem, as Matthew and Luke both report. Even before His birth, however, the angel Gabriel declared His glory and majesty, saying, He will be great, as we heard in the call to worship, and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God also made known Jesus' eternal nature, declaring from heaven at his baptism and at his transfiguration that Jesus is his beloved Son. And Jesus himself revealed his glory and his deity through his mighty works and the authority of his words. Nevertheless, Jesus' majesty and glory is not universally acknowledged. And for the most part, the people of Israel have rejected Him. 
as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11:28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. We're left wondering then, has God's word failed through Micah? What about the people of Israel and these promises that Micah has made to them? No, God's word has not failed. Paul would go on to say, as regards election, that is God's sovereign choice, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And furthermore, he anticipated a day when a large-scale return would take place. But in advance of that day, God allowed a partial hardening, not a complete hardening, to come upon the Jewish people until the fullness of the Gentiles should believe. In this way, the greatness of Christ is extending to the end of the earth in a shocking and surprising way that many in Micah's day would never have anticipated. In fact, in a way that Paul himself calls the, a mystery that the Gentiles should be incorporated into the one people of God. But Jesus revealed this in his own ministry, that his true brothers and his true flock are not defined by their ethnic background or biological ancestry. Rather, his family and his flock are defined by those who respond rightly to God's word. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 8.28 when people came to him and told him, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside for you. He said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And a woman said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. And he corrected her saying, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. God's people, Christ's brothers, his family, are those who respond with repentance and faith to his word. That is the primary mark that one is part of that, this family. Similarly, in John 10, 14 through 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. In this world there are two folds, the people of Israel and the Gentiles, and yet there is ultimately one flock. And Jesus revealed that his sheep are those who hear his words and respond in faith. That includes responding to his call to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. Just as in Hezekiah's day, some rejected that call in Jesus' day, not because he failed, but because they were not members of his flock. But those who heard his call and responded showed that they were his sheep. And Jesus revealed that he would be gathering many sheep into his flock from outside the fold when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He meant believers would come from outside the ethnic boundaries of Israel. They would come from another fold, but they would not come into a separate flock. For he declared there will be one flock, one shepherd. He is in the process of gathering that flock even now. A process he began at Pentecost when he poured out the Holy Spirit at first. Many of his brothers from the people of Israel were gathered in Jerusalem that day. They heard the gospel, they repented of their sin, and they believed the gospel. They returned to the Lord by accepting Jesus as the Christ. But Christ showed again and again that the gathering of his flock is a greater and more glorious work than even his disciples imagined. For it involves the gathering of men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. When this is complete... When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the rest of Jesus' brothers from the people of Israel and our brothers will come in also. And he will inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom. That is, he will bring to completion his kingdom on that day when he returns and shows himself to the world as the one who is God's faithful shepherd king for his people. But he had to be rejected before that day. Zechariah spoke in Zechariah 13.7, saying, I will strike the shepherd. And he himself, when he said, I am the good shepherd, said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He could not be the shepherd without a flock. He could not be a king without a people. And he could not be those things without going to the cross and giving his life for us. Because Micah said he himself 
will be our peace. But the peace that we most need is no different than the peace that Israel needed. They needed peace with God, not with Assyria and not with Babylon. They were merely instruments in God's hands, but they had took up their stand and made themselves enemies of God. And we likewise are born at enmity with God and live our lives as enemies of God until we come to faith in Christ who made peace with us, for us with God, by the blood of His cross, as Paul wrote in Colossians 1.20. And again, as he wrote to Gentile believers in Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. At that time, we were alienated from God's covenants and from the commonwealth of Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, as Micah said, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This then is where things stand in the progress of redemption and in the fulfillment of Micah's words. Our shepherd king has come from eternity and from Bethlehem, and he began a work of restoration that continues to this day. But it is a work more glorious than even Micah clearly spoke. For he's not merely restoring the family of Jacob, nor is he simply going back to the descendants of Abraham. He is restoring people from every son and daughter of Adam as one flock, one people, under the rule of one faithful shepherd king. And when he has completed this work, then he will return again in glory forevermore. Then we will know that peace and that security that Micah foresaw in its fullest measure. So let this be our hope and our trust as we await that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a glorious hope we have. What an amazing promise that no one could have imagined. That you would save a people from outside of Israel and incorporate, incorporate us as one people under one shepherd, one king, We could not deserve this, but you are indeed a faithful God who's a God of mercy and steadfast love. So we praise you and we thank you. We pray, O Lord, that you would so work in our hearts that we would rejoice in these things. And I pray, Lord, that if any are here who have not believed this gospel, that you would work in their hearts even now so that they might receive it with faith and believe it with joy and so find salvation in Christ, our faithful shepherd king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.